Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Zhang, a culture writer and critic. And this week we're discussing, and just like that, dot dot dot, and The Last <laughs> Duel, two works about the lives of women. Yeah, man. And how nothing <laughs> ever seems to fucking change for us, man. <laughs> So, speaking of nothing ever changing, I'm, I'm kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, a, uh, <laughs> that's actually true. Uh, how has your week been in the dead of winter where we're all just hibernating now? The only thing that happened recently, as as most of you know, we skipped last week because I had a tooth thing. And yes. it went okay. I was not able to get knocked out for the duration of this tooth extraction thing. What? Um, but they did put me on like laughing gas, which is the first time I experienced just like just cracking the bliss. up. Yeah, yeah. I just like I felt like I was outside my own body. I was like, I yeah, know dude. that this is because of the gas, but I'm gonna bury that thought beneath just the the overwhelming feeling of bliss and looseness. It's uh, the best. It's really the nice. best. Yeah, drugs are great. Well, not not to go all euphoria, but when necessary, drugs are great. Um, I think I was on laughing ga- gas before my surgery about three years ago because I think they give it to you relaxed. They said it yeah, was to relax, relax me, yeah, um, ahead of like full anesthesia, which I did go under. Interesting, yeah. but yeah, I didn't uh, produce any. I wouldn't have been like the star of a viral video of me saying like funny things because unfortunately yeah. it was not. It did not change me into a hilarious, uh, no. extremely entertaining person right then and there. How did you feel after after it? Uh, how was it? After? Uh, it was fine. I didn't even uh, suffer that much. Like mm. I, I didn't have to take some of like the narcotic painkillers described because uh, it just didn't hurt that much. So, do you yeah, hear that, Sacklers? She, yeah, fought. you didn't get me. You didn't get <laughs> you me. Didn't, you didn't get my girl, bro. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm totally <laughs> fine now. But how are you, Felon? Oh, I'm all right. I I got my new tech. I'm trying to get used to my new tech. I'm having a bit of regret with my new iPhone. <laughs> Why? Because it's it's like face lo- unlocks with your face recognition oh, I, thing. I will say I fucking hate that. Um, it's the fucking worst, especially in the mo- they just could not have picked a worse time I know, to launch right. it with masks and everything. Especially because my the previous one that I had was my fingerprint, which was so much more Love convenient. That. Yeah. Come on, man. Anyway, that's so we're that's like, annoying. We're going in the wrong direction here. Yeah, totally, totally. But yeah, I am used to my Kindle now, so I've oh, finished two books already. It's really nice, my new isn't it? Yeah. Like e-reading. Yeah, it is nice. And I've got like new glasses now. Because yeah. your girl's got dry eyes, so I'm like using my eye drops and got these new glasses and yeah, trying to look like, into distances and shit. So yeah, year, I feel, I feel new good. devices, new you. Uh, but I'm, I'm fine otherwise. I've been watching a lot of films with um, Sundance is happening this week, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm watching a bunch of films and that's kind of giving me uh a bit of oh joy. did you get screeners or no no or... i'm paying out of pocket baby oh <laughs> nice nice yeah but that's how uh, dedicated you are to uh, the craft listen yeah. i love cinema maybe next year we'll get screeners <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how this podcast grows yeah we'll um, send this on to the universe like this was our time yeah, yeah um i will so. say for our listeners i saw jenny's tooth she did get to keep it oh yes it looks true. fucking sick it's so cool fucking <laughs> it's so cool it's a weird ass fucking tooth. Tooth, teeth, it, teeth is weird. Period. Teeth, tooths are weird. Tooth, tooth, They're just yeah. weird. Yeah, freaky little fucking bone bone fragments just like growing in your mouth. But hey, they, they do they do what they need to do. You know, yeah, we gotta chop away at stuff. 
Speaking of jumping away at stuff, this is the worst segue in the world. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been getting through, Jenny, in your TB diet? So I've been uh, gnashing away at... (laughs) And just like that (laughs) on HBO Max. Of course, I'm going to assume that everyone knows what this is, but uh, just in case, it is the revival of Sex and the City. Like, it came out 17 years after the original series ended. Wow. And it's set 11 years after the events of the second movie, uh, Sex and the City 2. The worst film maybe of all time, I would say. I'm really glad I have not watched either of the films. (laughs) <laughs> the, the first one's okay the second one is actually shocking i knew that film was problematic even when i was problematic <laughs> fucking hell anyway yeah. sorry no no worries so the showrunner of and just like that is michael patrick king who worked on the original series and he also led the two uh sex in the city films and so sarah jessica parker cynthia nixon kristen davis and a few others in the original series return in their roles plus they have some new characters Before we get too far into this revival, I want to ask you, Pellin, what was your relationship with, like, Sex and the City? Like, when did you first watch it? Was it, like, really important part of growing up or your TV diet? Um, Yeah, just, like, what is what tell me about you and all right all right let's get into pelin keskin folklore all right okay so i first heard or saw sex and the city for the first time in my life when my older cousins like i have like these favorite cousins i would go over to their house and they were three girls so they were three Mm -hmm. sisters and i would go over to their house and the eldest had the box set yeah i I think i was in what you guys would call middle school i guess at this point but we started (laughs) watching it and I watched like a couple episodes here and there and I loved it then. And I think in terms of like what it taught me about relationships, at that time I was like, yo, you guys are old and you're still trying to date. Like, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, years, like, I think I got my first boyfriend when I was like just shy of 18. But I just found it very entertaining and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever to like. But oh. I definitely, I definitely got into it in my early 20s. Like I watched everything from start to finish properly mm. in my early 20s and i really i mean it's very enjoyable so mm. i'm still a fan of it i i still think it's like one of the more entertaining like what 20 minute long <laughs> episodic show yeah. in in recent history how about you though like what what was it like for you being in america well i guess i missed the entire like uh initial wave of sex in the city we I guess I was probably too young. Yeah. I wasn't watching, you know, the same TV shows as mm-hmm. maybe like my peers had heard of, like immigrant parents, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I only started watching it for the first time during the pandemic, either in 2020 or 2021. Yeah. And I finally finished the whole series a couple months ago, actually almost like by serendipity, like just in time for and just like that. Okay. But yeah, it, it took me a little bit to warm up to it because I guess mm-hmm. I was like, whatever, I don't really like Carrie. But I don't know, the more I watched it, the more I liked it. It's really like enjoyable, like you said. Yeah, because the best kind of TV is like, oh, I'm just hanging out with my friends. <laughs> and like, yeah, I think the girls yeah. kind of fit into that format, even though the, like most of them annoy the hell out of me Mm -hmm. you have a bit of consistency but there's changes episode to episode because of the men that they're dating or Mm -hmm. whatever and it moves through the happenings of their life pretty quickly so and they like they grow and they develop yeah and the rewatchability currency is so strong too because like what i end up doing if i'm traveling for work that my favorite thing is to go on e and just like late night just watch a couple episodes of sex in the city and then go to bed 
it's fascinating to me that you've very recently watched it and you still found it entertaining, which kind of goes to show like it's not so much a nostalgia thing. It really is like decent quality. Yeah. Um, and of but, course, like people always point out like um, how, how parts of whatever TV shows in the past have aged poorly or elements that sure. are not considered great nowadays. But sure. those are true, but they're not the whole thing, right? Like they only make a part of the sort of like existential part of a show so um which brings me to and just like that we're eight episodes in at this Mm -hmm. point and it's still really hard for me to pin down exactly how i feel about this show Mm. Mm. i don't even really know how to articulate it which is kind of surprising because for most shows i do have a firmer grasp on like my own feelings towards the show yeah i i think i and not enjoying it necessarily but also can I appreciate it for what it is and what it's trying to do? Maybe? I don't know. Where are you at, Pelin, with this show? So, when the first episode came out, I think everybody was like, this fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, felt, I felt like the only person that was like, it's really not so bad. And, well, I think it was the first two episodes that they launched, right? By se- the second episode, it still had that feeling and the same DNA of the original series in terms of the tone of everybody, in terms of the dialogue between the women. So I felt pretty comforted by it and it felt like good, like it captured the tone of it okay. I think I'm with you in that there is a part of it that feels forced and a part of it that feels very natural. And I'm trying to look past the part that feels forced (laughs) so that I can just focus on the part that I actually like. And I, I think so far it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty evenly split i'm still having a good time i'm still enjoying it It, because it's a weekly release it's something that i do look forward to so (laughs) that's where i'm at right and and just like that is like kind of gotten very mixed reception so far they they don't like how the characters have changed they don't like this um you know quote-unquote wokeness or this attempt to increase diversity or address like very specific current cultural issues and trends i think like getting more into the tone of it Fresh off of my watch of Sex and the City, I do feel that it it's not hitting quite the same for me in terms of the magic of Sex and the City, which... Yeah. But there's, like, a lot of sort of, like, meta questions here that might go into this feeling that I'm expressing, which yeah. I'm excited to discuss with you. So I what really hit me with the original series is probably, like, the energy of it, the playfulness of it, mm-hmm. um, the feeling of being, like, young and alive and with your friends in New York. Mm-hmm. I can't necessarily relate to that, but there was something that was, like, coming across the screen for me. But I will, like, also acknowledge that Sex and the City had a more cynical side. I was reading this Emily Nussbaum piece for The New Yorker from 2013 mm-hmm. uh, about how Carrie is, like, the first or one of the first like actual female anti-heroes on yes. on TV. Yep. A little bit like cynical or ironic approach to love and fairy tale endings um until the original series ended in a fairy tale ending. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, for for the time it was somewhat I don't know if you would use the word revolutionary or radical or at least it was like different in what it was trying to do with its protagonists and so there's always been a little bit of an edge to it too, which I yeah. appreciated more after I read that New Yorker piece. So I think, and just like that, you can see how it maybe fits more in that sort of mm. side of Sex in the City, like being a little bit cynical, a little bit world weary. And I think if I can convince myself that that's what the showrunners 
are like consciously trying to do with this mm-hmm. like it makes more sense for me yeah i think when sex in the city the series was great was when it was trying to showcase how embarrassing it is also to date yeah men yeah like just the straightness of it all <laughs> and i think what this series with and just like that i think it's really kind of zeroing in on the humiliation of it all like whether it's aging whether it's grief uh whether it's trying to get back in the game <laughs> uh whether it's having an affair whatever it might be i think i always enjoyed it when like it when it got messy it got better and i mm-hmm. think the messiness of this se- of this series of of and just like that i don't know i just i i appreciate that they're not being tidy about it and they're not trying to make it so straightforward and clean cut um yeah i do miss samantha obviously i think that's my yeah. biggest thing because she was my favorite and we're t- if we're talking about revolutionary female characters, like yeah. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> in terms of romantic, like showcasing romantic relationships with a man and a woman, I don't know anything that comes close to Samantha breaking up with Smith because she loves herself more. And like that, that yeah. is that is to me was when I was like, holy shit, you can do that. I miss her. And obviously, like, you know, with Kim Cattrall, like, respect to her for not getting involved. They're very untidily trying to, like, figure out her absence in in, in and just like that. But yeah, in terms of, like, what they're doing with Miranda, I'm really enjoying the the Miranda (laughs) storyline, even though, you know, it's kind of slotted into this, like, very annoying circumstance. Yeah, like, what they're doing with Miranda, I think, most exemplifies, I guess, the kind of angle that they're going for with the mm-hmm. show which you know vox said a piece about it by alex avanzantos recently he was like yeah this show is kind of like cringe but it's it's on purpose they really do want to show the humiliation of life and the indignities yeah. of continuing on with life oh god yeah um, especially <laughs> when you're you know aging yeah and you're past a certain demographic i thought that was like a really interesting lens through which to like interpret what's going on with and just like that and the more that we like progress in the show i do think that is what they were going for like especially Mm -hmm. you can see with the uh miranda character with her storyline and like the pivotal scene of miranda getting fingered while carrie is like lying in her own pee on her bed that like was really kind of like the turning point i think for realizing what the show is trying to do but i i will say like i'm not sure that they're pulling it off very well Mm. like i think especially with the way that they're writing some of these characters and i don't know it's it's kind of hard for me to like give words to this because i I don't know if the way that i'm thinking about it is wrong Mm. or if the way that the show is approaching it is like you know quote unquote wrong but it's almost like the 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 writers are convinced that as soon as you hit 50 or 55 there's not really the ability to age with dignity mm-hmm. or like you have to be an out of touch you know narcissist or you have to be like a totally floundering mess yeah. who like blows up your life you have to like be like an old person who doesn't know what podcasts are who doesn't know what race yeah. is even though you've lived in new york for like decades you don't know how to deal with the world anymore yeah and i don't know if like by saying that am i being ageist for saying that or is like the show yeah, i mean everyone's relationship with aging is different and and right, i think right and these are just like a few people right and and they're very particular type of women from a very particular bubble that are getting through this they're all very rich <laughs> like 
in terms of like the denial of things that just happen outside of your control, of course, a bunch of rich women feel indignant about the fact that they look different or they're treated differently because they're not really used to that. And they haven't really been used to that for, for I don't know, decades of their life. But I do think that Sex in the City has always been depiction of fantasy and these women trying to build that fantasy, whether it's Miranda being the power uh, woman that works and mm-hmm. has it all, whether it's, um, you know, Samantha having the best sex of her life, whether it's Carrie being fabulous and also like gets the man that she's always wanted. Or, of course, I yeah. think the biggest fan- fantasizer who's Charlotte. <laughs> so, and yeah. yeah. The fact that this fantasy is still there for them to try and achieve and the fact that they keep, as they get older, they keep uh, faltering with it and like trying to reestablish their relationship to whatever this fantasy is, whether that fantasy changes or not. I think that's it's accurate for this group of women. It makes sense to me. Yeah. So maybe it's not so much that it's like a, a sweeping statement about being like a 55-year-old woman overall, right. but just specific to these characters Um, because like say for example in the latest episode there's there's this whole subplot with uh carrie and her downstairs neighbor who's basically like the more fabulous like much younger 20 something californian version of herself and Mm -hmm. you know like there's a part of me that gets frustrated because it's like get a grip like what are you doing like comparing yourself to a like i don't even do that now and i'm 32 you know like it's so embarrassing But Carrie is embarrassing. Carrie is childish. Carrie is vapid. She thinks about these things. Like, that's her character. Of course she does. Like, she's not as smart as sometimes she can be. Like, I think we all just wish that there was somebody that was a little bit wiser. (laughs) But I think the woman that's wiser is not there, which is Samantha. (laughs) She, already in the show, like, original series, where she was, you know, ostensibly the oldest character in the, the, among the four, she really... She was fine with it. She, if anyone, like, I don't know, she had a, a dignity. and Oh, a, totally. I really miss Samantha, yeah. too, clearly. Yeah, I mean, um, hands down the best one out of all of them. Yeah. Um, that being said, like, I wish that they didn't kind of shoehorn, like, the... Every time that they're like, hey, oh, hey, Steve, what's up? Oh, and he's yeah, like, ah, I'm just, like, 55 and getting really old and, and dead. Yeah. And it's just, like, they really want to, like, hammer in the fact that these characters are older than they once yeah. were. But they're they're doing that in, in a somewhat unnatural yeah. way from a dialogue point yeah, of view. Yeah, no, it's um, annoying. It's very annoying. I want to talk a little bit more about what's happening happening with some of the specific characters. So yeah, let's, we touched let's get on into Miranda, yes. of course. Yes. Um, what do you make of like Miranda's journey? Mm. And I'll say like sub point to that: what's happening with Steve? Who I am just so. I think the whole like fan base has rallied around like the question of like why why is this happening to steve yeah <laughs> um i think for miranda this completely tracks just mm-hmm. her need to try and be more woke and putting her foot in it miranda has always been embarrassing always like yeah. if you go through all the series over sex in the city she, i i think this makes sense and i'm excited for her to get her whole shit rocked by a non-binary character who will absolutely <laughs> who will absolutely cheat on her who will absolutely make her feel like she made a huge mistake um but i i think this feeling of like you're in a slumber in your marriage i i, I am totally bought in it and i buy the Miranda narrative that's happening. Um, yeah, I believe that it could happen yeah. to her and to her marriage. Like we saw, 
even in the formation of their relationship, like how she was dissatisfied, how she ne- yeah. felt Steve was never enough, as he like articulated yeah. in the the latest episode, I just feel so like bad for Steve. Yeah, I think it's implied that they've had trouble over the years where they've been to couples therapy like a couple of times and Mm -hmm. they've been tumultuous and it's implied in their you know breakup scene essentially but i do wish that there was a little bit more of that like i i don't know i i I wish we saw that argument or we saw that tumultuousness or we saw that like because we see it very rarely he's i mean honestly he's barely on on screen yeah, yeah yeah And when he is, he's so he's such a caricature of himself. It's really weird. Yes, yes. That's I guess that that's the part that makes me uh, the most dissatisfied. Yeah. Like what they've stern- turned Steve into. Yeah, and I really hate Brady and his girlfriend. Oh yeah, mm. yeah. What little shit? What uh, can we talk a little bit about motherhood? Yeah, of course. Uh, like my biggest gripe with the original series was that we never got to see these women's mothers. Like we never understood them in relation to their mothers which uh i think says a lot and maybe they just didn't want to open that can of worms because it's too complicated and too deep or whatever and they didn't want to bog themselves down with it but it's really like you're seeing the after effects of it when they're getting into motherhood now with and just like that because both for miranda and with charlotte they're so weird like what Mm -hmm. i don't understand it i don't understand them as mothers what do i know i'm not a mother i just you know I'm a daughter that is, is obsessed with motherhood. So, yeah. Yes, I don't know. we both are. I agree with that. I didn't really think, I, I hadn't really thought about that before. Like in the original series, they didn't show any of the mothers except like to kill Miranda's mother. But yeah, it is sort of like for a group of people and like a series that's so, you know, focused on portraying what it is to be a woman. Like that's a huge part of like a woman's life yeah. uh, not just any woman but like people's life but especially like mothers and daughters yeah. i think um, i mean granted they did have a pretty good conversation between miranda and her professor about whether or not she wanted children i like that com- i thought that was a very well-written scene um yeah but <laughs> anyway yeah in terms of carrie how do you feel about carrie now again it's hard for me to like say this but like i need her to perk up a little bit like <laughs> get it together she, i understand that she's grieving i understand her husband just died very tragically uh, on a peloton bike but i really miss the version of carrie from sex in the city that was so much more um slyly funny and mm-hmm. like uh just like this archness about her and age and or grief or whatever has like worn her down yeah. uh like, even the way that she just, like, throws off her, her like, tosses around her quips, like, mm-hmm. her witticisms yeah. in this version, they're just, it's not the same. There's not the same kind of, like, uh, energy to that. Um, there's shadows of it, though. I, I do. I do. There, there's shadows, yeah. but it's, like, very, like, overwhelmed by the, the circumstances, I guess. I just don't understand. The whole grief thing with her feels so underdeveloped to the point of like it's almost comical and i think it's the same thing of like we want to get serious or we want to get um real you know with the humiliation or whatever it might be but we don't want to go too into it with what that entails like the fact that with her we don't ever see her really working through it and we right, find out that she like wrote a book the that we, yeah like she wrote a book that we're never going to read obviously but it's apparently all in the book and it's devastating oh yeah what? and that time jump um, <sighs> anyway that was fucking annoying 
I do agree with you, though. I, th- I think there is an element of her that seems to be missing. We'll, yeah. we'll see what and of happens. Of course, like though. a big part. Yeah, we'll see what happens. And of course, the big part of it is the the voiceovers, the narration, which have returned in like fits and spurts, but it, it's just like not a continuous running, uh, like through line of this show. Yeah, so there's far, no, there's no fun wordplay. Like yeah. And what do you think of the new characters? So we have yeah. quite a few additions to the cast, yeah. namely, I guess to put it indelicately, uh, every like main woman has her new non-white sidekick. Yep um hey hey. which is like kind of hard to parse through but also i'm not really sure how else the show could or should have like handled this problem that stems from the original so i'm not like too mad about that Um, yeah i'm i I mean it's the same thing of like it's the same thing that i have said about girls that i will say about this as well these women are not gonna have people of color their friends like right like Let's be accurate here before we try and virtue signal. Now, like with this reboot saying that, obviously, if we're taking class into consideration, of course, there are plenty of very rich uh, women of color, which we see in this. You know, most of them are apart from, I guess, you know, Miranda's professor in in the upper crust. in the upper crust. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. think like they I don't care about them. <laughs> like I, it's not that I need to, but. I think, uh, like, Sarita Chowdhury's character, Seema. Oh, I, yeah, is, she's my favorite. Yeah, she's she's interesting because, like, for her, there's, like, a cultural issue with dating that she has to deal with. Um, that being said, she also does seem to be a mouthpiece for Carrie to just wear whatever she wants. She really, like, fills uh, multiple roles at once. Like, they're... Yeah. I forgot where I read this, but it pointed out basically she's she's filling Samantha's role in a sense. She's filling uh, Stanford's role in a sense. Yeah. She's she's even taking on some of the what Big used to do, like being like, yeah, let's let's get these Cuban cigars. Let's like this like sort of air of masculinity also in a yeah, sense. Yeah, the reason why um, Carrie smokes, for example. Yeah. yeah, I really like Sarita Chowdhury, but it's. It's a lot to ask her to do yeah. all of this through one character. The, I guess uh, the new character that has had the most impact is obviously mm-hmm. the one and only Che Diaz, a fellow oh podcaster, <laughs> uh, a stand-up comedian. Um, so this is the non-binary character that is Carrie's boss um, mm-hmm. as a podcaster that Carrie stars on and is also yeah. Miranda's new love interest. So what do you think about yes. them? Well, I'll say first off, I love what Che Diaz has given us in terms of the jokes Comedy. and the memes iconic like i i can't think of a, a more iconic like brand new character um among a cast yeah. of you know beloved well-known characters from before Just so unintentionally hilarious i know people i mean so many people have said this this character is like annoying in a lot of ways this character is unrealistic in a lot of ways not not my favorite character but also one of my favorite additions definitely and i think sarah ramirez who who plays che if you are a Grey's anatomy fan you know um I think they are gorgeous. Like, I think they function, like, they serve the good function of, like, why Miranda would find them hot, why Miranda would cheat. I do think it's hilarious in that. It's really hilarious. Yeah, because every time they're on stage and they're talking about, like, queerness, (laughs) it's just the whole thing of, like, if you eat pussy, make some noise. And everyone's, like, going crazy. And (laughs) and I don't know, like, (laughs) Miranda's, like, getting really teary eyed because she feels so inspired. It's so funny. Like, it's just so unintentionally funny. Yeah, um, it really adds a lot of the uh, 
comedic affect yeah. to this yeah. the show. And um, I, I wonder what Sarah Ramirez thinks about it because I know that they are also non-binaries. But I, I think the yeah. part that I am excited for is Miranda to realize that she is not getting her romantic Me comedy too. ending. Um, yeah i'm very into that just rude awakening which i'm sure will happen in the next oh episode. for sure it's it, it reminds me of like the whole west elm caleb stuff that has been happening where people are like <laughs> like so many queer people are like these straight girls would not survive a day on like queer hinge yeah i'm excited for miranda to get into how <laughs> how messy queer dating can be um yeah. so shout out to you che diaz thank you for giving us what you have given us so far at least yeah man it's it's great <laughs> so to close off our and just like that chat i just want i guess a summary slash like final verdict so far of like so some people have expressed the sentiment like we need to learn how to let things end mm. and not have to constantly rehash and revive mm. and reboot overall are you glad that this revival exists or do you wish it just like did not need to come back into being well i'm having fun so i think that it's fine um in terms of the moral question of of whether or not we think things should end of course like i i always think that things should end but with this i don't know like i think considering the mess that this production has had to deal with, whether it's Kim Cattrall not coming back, whether it's the Chris, Chris Noth Noth's accusations, accusations uh, whether it's the yeah. death of Willie Garson. I think it's kind of pulled it off for the most part. And I am having fun. I don't know. I like a weekly release. I like hanging out with these people. I like seeing these girls get embarrassed week after week. So I'm not mad at it. I don't think it's going to add anything uh, to the overall legacy of this show, though. So... I don't know. I guess I'm 50-50 on that. What about you? Yeah, again, like philosophically, I do think things should have endings. And as for this show, I'm not having a bad time, but I'm not entirely convinced yet that I needed to like see any of this. I almost like so fresh off of my first watch. I kind of liked the place where that series left me, like the the sort of memory Mm. that took hold in my mind of that whole Sex and the City legacy. So... I was satisfied with that, and I think I would have been satisfied with that being the the last that I saw of these characters or the yeah, series. Yeah, because it was such a fantastical ending, right? And like this is kind of mm-hmm. bursting that bubble a little bit. Yeah, yeah for better or for worse. We'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll see. see how they end this one, and then I guess we can make a proper judgment. Yeah, we'll we'll circle back to this in a couple weeks. Now, for you, Pellin, what did you watch this week? So this week I watched The Last Duel, which is on HBO Max, uh, for the time being, because HBO Max sometimes takes their films off. But this is set in 14th century France, which is a fucking long time ago. And when mm-hmm. when the date came up, I was like, yo, that is ages ago. And it, I don't know why it made me realize like how new the United States is, where I was like, oh, wow, that country did not, like in terms of like did the Western exist. country did not exist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So this is one of the two 2021 Ridley Scott films that came out, uh, the other one being House of Gucci, and it stars Boston's finest, Matthew Page Damon and Benjamin Gezer Affleck Bolt. Is that really his full name? Yeah, dude. So basically Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and, um, yes. <laughs> and of course, uh, Adam Driver and Jodie Comer. So it's a stacked cast, much like House of Gucci is a stacked cast, because all the girls want to work with Ridley, baby. 
Um, and the script, uh, more interestingly, the script is co-written by Affleck, Damon, and Nicole Holofcener. If you have watched Good Will Hunting, you know that that is one of the finest scripts written by our boys, Affleck and Damon. And this is this is their latest attempt with another co-writer. So uh, just a quick trigger warning. Uh, we will be discussing uh, the subject of rape because it is one of the things that this film is about. So that being said, TLDR, this tells the true story of the alleged rape in 1386 of the wife of a nobleman by a lesser nobleman. The husband is Jean de Carouge, who is played by Damon. He presents the accusation of rape to the king at the time, which is Charles VI, I think, and challenges the accused, who is Jacques Legree, played by Driver, to a duel to the death, because that's how he wanted to execute justice, because according to him, whoever wins is telling the truth in the eyes of God. So, when did you watch this? I think we watched this at around the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just watched it when it came out on HBO Max. I know when it came out in theaters last year, there's a bit of a, I guess, a mini discourse about this. Yeah. And it's box office performance and its contents and such and such. But I had heard that it was, you know, despite what some people are saying, I had heard that it was a good film. And when I watched it, I, I thought so too. I yeah. liked it. I think the main thing was that it was such a huge period epic and it's a Ridley Scott period epic. And the fact that not that many people watched it. I don't know, yeah, it kind of felt like it came out like a wet fart. Yeah. So I think like part of the reason why some people are circling back to it and saying that actually this is pretty good is because the film has an interesting format and an interesting structure that isn't as traditional or like linear. Mm-hmm. So it's split into three chapters. Each of the chapters is told by the perspective of, you know, chapter one is the husband and then chapter two is Legree. The third chapter is the wife, Marguerite de Carouge, who is Jodie Comer. This is what is known as the Rashomon effect. And if uh, you have seen the film Rashomon by Kurosawa, Rashomon is also interestingly about a rape, but it's basically showing perspectives of different characters to showcase like implicit bias or bias and interpretation of an event. So in Rashomon, it's a little bit more uh, ambiguous from each one and it's kind of up to the audience to decide who they believe and it's really cool like i highly recommend if you have not seen this film to to seek it out but how did you feel about it how did you feel about this this format i thought it was a really interesting device and i think it was very effective it's like not the most complex thing in the world to do but it was uh effective especially regarding you know something like a crime and a rape and a woman's experience here yeah and i think what they were trying to do with this film because the the film is kind of based on a book that is a non-fiction that it explores the uh what a scandal this was at the time and and how much basically everybody was gossiping about it and yeah it was like a whole event because i mean what's going on in 14th century france and this is pretty scandalous and the fact that at the time rape was not a crime against the woman but against the property of the man property um but in the book i think it it leaned a little bit more on the perspective of the two men and in this film it starts Mm. off with the perspective of the two men and then it ends on the chapter of the wife and there is clarity in it and i think i like that that it was saved for the last the last part of it because you know Unlike Rashomon, there is not much ambiguity as to whether or not this was a rape. Like, I think yeah. it's pretty tough to watch. There were two, two inter- like you see the rape scene twice. Yeah. Even in the, in the perspective of Legree, who does not think it is, it is obviously, it is still obviously for anybody yeah, watching it, it's, it's clearly obviously. rape. So it's tough to watch in that 
sense of it. If you need to skip forward, by all means, go for it. I, I did like that they tried to really showcase for Marguerite how in the first chapter, you really think that uh, Le Carouge is an exemplary husband. Mm-hmm. Um, not only not only that you think that he's an exemplary husband, but that they adore each other as a couple. Right. And right. <laughs> that he would do anything for her. And in the second uh, with uh, Jacques Legris, he thinks that she is unhappy or he, with his ego, obviously believes that he is the better man. In the third chapter with Marguerite, you find, and this was, I thought, was pretty smart. You finally come to a realization that there has been no man has ever made her happy. Yeah, and they both like they both represent real threats yeah. to her, and and they they make her suffer in different yeah, ways. Yeah, I thought that was pretty well. Yeah, done. like she's there's no one protecting her. Her her father doesn't protect yeah. her. Her husband doesn't protect her. This guy that says that he's better for her d- certainly does not protect her. The right. courts don't protect her. Even her friend doesn't protect her. So she's kind of she's kind of on her own. Um, mm-hmm. I will say I still felt like that the story was a little bit more skewed towards the guys than I would have liked. I don't know how you would fix it. And I don't know whether it's because they took up two thirds of the film that this annoys me. I, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big part mm-hmm. of it. And I agree that I don't really know how to fix that because that's just like what the format lends yeah, itself to. Yeah. Like Marguerite's chapter doesn't hit without seeing the nuances of, of, of the two guys and whatever their, their yeah. perspective is. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know how to... <laughs> I don't know how to fix it. I, I did like like how the more you watch the film, the more anticipation like that builds up for you to watch the final chapter yeah. because you're, it's like her point of view, but also the thing that as a viewer, you're like, that's going to be the most closely aligned to yeah. the truth. Yeah. That is sort of like leading up to this grand yeah. finale. And it's almost like a, a, a sobering for the audience to be like, snap out of it. This isn't about how this man hates this man. And that's what it's about. This is about an inherently wrong way of going about like justice and rightness and i think like the film itself definitely feels like something that i would have watched in like 2008 2010 post gladiator post 300 vibe of it Mm. um i mean ridley scott's in his fucking bag with this so it definitely feels like a huge american director epic of a period so i enjoy that sometimes it's nice to kind of feel that again the largeness of it yeah we don't we don't really get those so much anymore yeah and everything looks impressive uh i just want to give a huge shout out to the hair and makeup department wow like talk about making almost everybody look ridiculous uh matt damon as le carouge is he looks disgusting definitely want to give a huge shout out to ben affleck's character in this so he plays count pierre who is besties with uh, Jacques Legree. Yeah, he has like this blonde wig and blonde goatee and it's like the usual like the nymphs going around him and he's just like totally debauched. It's just a hilarious he seemed to be having a lot of fun he's, with that he, role. Yeah, no, I was going to say that. Um he really he really sold this role and I truly believe that like he was having the time yeah. of his life playing this. Uh, if you enjoyed Ben Affleck in that, I highly recommend watching The King on Netflix because Robert Pattinson is playing someone very similar. Oh, uh, yeah. So I highly recommend watching that one too so yeah i i just um my one gripe i think was that they were kind of ham-fisting the reaction of the women around marguerite a little bit too much uh to be like oh there's a bit of solidarity there but they can't speak up uh fuck that like who fucking cares right they were trying to go for some sort of like poignancy but it didn't no it's too empty like these women don't i don't know if they would ever give a shit and i think uh jodie coma she needs to figure something out with her agent because 
I don't know if this really worked for her. I think she recently did turn down the role of a wife, which I'm glad she did because she is such a singular actress. Like she has an impishness about her that worked really well on Killing Eve as like a playful psychopath, basically. And I think in this, she did the best that she could, but I, it kind of felt like she was a little bit underutilized. She had to play it like very straight. Yeah. Obviously, like there's no room in her character for... Yeah, like... To, to show off like some of the her ability yeah range. like very tropey noble woman indignant yeah uh so it's hard to get a bit of nuance with that but overall i had a fun time check it out and uh let me know what you guys think this week for culture we are taking a little bit of a business turn um so we are going to talk about netflix and specifically netflix's price hike and what's going on with that yeah so if you're not aware if you haven't received an email from netflix already they're increasing their monthly price to 15.49 from the most basic 9.99 which is a pretty big jump i would say yeah and this to give more context is happening in the wake of netflix's stock plunging like it's investors and, and, you know, like Wall Street and everything. They're, they're freaking out because Netflix isn't growing enough and adding as many subscribers, you know, as they were before at these like astronomical rates. Yeah. So people are freaking out about Netflix and its future, its capital F future. And I think this says something about the state of streaming and the industry or something like that yeah there are just so much competition now there are so many streaming platforms and then they're competing for content and they're competing for subscribers and there are only so many people in the world you know they're at a certain point like you you hit a ceiling with the number of subscribers you can get and i think that is potentially happening with Netflix in North America and like, even the world. This... I think like it's getting to the point yeah. where like they they expanded. To, they're still expanding, I guess, to like Latin America. Yeah, they um, want to hit more um, Asian customers. Mm-hmm. They want to pull in more Latin American subscribers. Yeah. But as for like North America and Europe, like it's, I think it's it's pretty close to where there there's not as much room to grow. Yeah, and like the thing with like Silicon Valley and like Wall Street and everything, they they demand growth at a ridiculous pace like they're it's no longer fine in like right now's i don't know hyper capitalist society whatever to just like have a sustainable slow steady growth or to like be making money turning a fine profit and doing okay Mm -hmm. investors and and nvc like they demand more and more and more yeah I don't know. I would say it's responsible for a lot of the fuckery with how capitalism know, is what it capitalism is. Capitalism works <laughs> yeah. like right now. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that was interesting because when I saw the Netflix like email about the price hike, I was just like, this is how much HBO costs. This yeah. is actually, it was kind of shocking to me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. How, how are you feeling, Palin? Do you think you're going to keep Netflix? I don't know because I think we've previously said on this po- podcast that, well, I call it midflix because most of the stuff feels like junk that you have to kind of sift through to maybe get what you need to get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might keep it there because it's the constant. And I think that's, that's the strength of Netflix. I think many people consider Netflix to be the constant and anything yeah, else like that they add the on base. to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, anything else is an add on. Yeah. You know, a lot of that has to, had to do with the fact that it was cheaper so i don't know what's going to yes. happen now I, I remember when they were like we're gonna stop uh multiple people on one account 
you know, the feature that you can, yeah, add, you can add yeah. two people. I think they were going to either reduce that or get rid of that. And I think that made people go a little bit nuts. And I feel like, if anything, that might be the next move for them if they stop, like, if they continue plateauing. Yeah. I mean, it's all, like, value proposition, right? Yeah. From the customer's yeah. point of view. It's like, what are you giving me for what I'm paying you? And Netflix is, like, demanding more. While they're not really adding much that is a value on the platform. Like, if I'm yeah. going to pay HBO prices... I want HBO level shows and movies and really like you said like Netflix isn't really providing that at the moment but you and I are like late 20s early 30s our household is basically more about us (laughs) like it's just we are singular and in terms of most households across America and also with the world they are having to deal with multiple different types of taste. So they're dealing with children. Yeah, they're dealing true. with dads who love nonfiction. And Netflix, I think, is pretty unmatched <laughs> with its nonfiction stuff. And, you know, you're dealing with, yeah, like whether it's, you know, people like us that want a bit of nostalgia and there's like the back catalog of a show yeah, that we used to watch. Really um, mm-hmm. Or, yeah, it's like the next chatty thing. And, you know, mums will watch the endless British period dramas that are on there too. So they they do try and provide something for everybody. And I think that's the biggest strength that they have, but it's yeah. not to say that other, other platforms aren't shooting for that too. Cause I think HBO has really increased its uh, documentary, like nonfiction uh, mm-hmm. library too. But I think their main thing is just trying to figure out their international audience. Cause that's the only way that you're going to grow with this format. And we've been seeing that they are like, focusing a lot more on like international content like global hits like with squid game obviously yeah it is like the direction they're going and i think like the global content is good i mean i like seeing that i like seeing that that's where we're going yeah like they're adding so many more k dramas like even turkish dramas did you see the the news about squid game that they're gonna make like a whole universe oh yeah yeah everyone wants universes nowadays yeah because it's it's the disney format of like i know thanks a lot marvel if you can make billions off of a bunch yeah i mean why not i don't know i i don't know what it means for the future of netflix i think do they win with the ux and the ui like yeah definitely like it's the easiest one to use i think like hbo max is still there's still this running joke about the hbo max um, (laughs) it's like being awful yeah unusable but in terms of like say netflix is a constant what then do you add on top of that like i i think that's the main thing that people are asking themselves is if i had to pick three or four which ones would i pick and i think there's always one spot that drops in and drops out like for example now that yellow jackets is over showtime. i have canceled showtime so oh, i gotta cancel it too uh, yeah. but most people don't function like that most people are like what is on there and that's why i think netflix will stay yeah the like it had the benefit of being um the first the one that became a, a verb yeah like a, yeah but what's what are your like current three right now if you had to choose palin in terms of your streaming platform so let's say netflix stays there uh-huh. hbo max because i no longer feel like i need amazon prime I, i'm also like not interested in the lord of the Rings series or any of the shit that they've they've started releasing so netflix max hbo max and i'm gonna say hulu because i have a husband that watches sports so Mm. probably hulu and their 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 movie library is actually not bad i think those three what about you hmx i'd say is my top one right now i guess i will have to keep netflix third one really hard to say i think like the hulu experience is 
vastly different for the like basic subscriber versus the um the premium like hulu premium or whatever i highly i do not think hulu basic is worth it especially with the ads like it's so annoying so my third one i'm tempted to say apple Mm. but again there's like nothing really currently airing on apple that is making me you know return to it time and time again yeah the apple series are not great and they just they just like don't have enough stuff right now yeah so this has been our uh, business dispatch. Yes. Very rare the state of the industry. Yeah. Dispatch. Let us know what you think about the price hike. Let us know if you think are thinking about getting rid of Netflix for something else. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to know. Very curious. Very curious. Uh, <laughs> In the meantime, yeah, as always, if you think we should check out anything cool on any of these streaming platforms or, or otherwise, uh, let us know. Criticismisdead at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Or if you have any additional comments, notes, uh, feedback, whatever, uh, you can always email us or find us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also check out our substack, criticismisdead.substack.com. For extended show notes, uh, including links to everything we've been talking about and some bonus links or tweets. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everyone who has rated or reviewed on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Love to keep that going. Thank you. Feel free to tell a friend about us, uh, whatever you want. Otherwise, thank you so much for sticking with us again. And we will see you next week. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Penn and Keskin Liu and Jenny Dujan. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.